Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about centaurs. Today's episode weaves together the legends of three famous centaur myths to illuminate the dichotomy of the centaur's human and bestial components. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to the ParCast original, Mythical Monsters. Each episode of our show explores some of the most terrifying monsters from cultures around the world. By diving into these unsettling creatures' origins, we aim to discover where they come from, what fears they prey upon, and why they continue to fascinate and inspire us to this day. Last week, we dove into the eerie and ethereal lore of the Inuit mermaid, the Kalupalik. A witch woman of the icy Alaskan waters, the Kalubalik would kidnap wandering children and feed off their delicious youth. Check it out if you haven't already. Today, we're discussing the famous hybrid creature, the centaur. A balance of man and horse, centaurs combine the wisdom of humanity with the chaotic barbarism of the animal kingdom. Greek sculptures and images from the 10th century BCE present the centaur as majestic and exotic, embodying positive traits boys should aspire to in order to become strong men. But as time wore on, the illustrations and sculptures of centaurs indicated Greek sentiment was moving from respect to fear. By the 7th and 5th centuries BCE, the centaur was primarily tied to myths regarding their aggression and lust, and numerous tales depict them carrying off women and committing sexual assault. The centaur's penchant for heavy drinking serves as a cautionary tale for those who succumb to temptation. The centaurs are said to be followers of Dionysus, the god of wine, Dionysus is associated with excess and wild festivities, linking the centaurs even more to the idea of drunken buffoonery. The lack of females in their species further adds to the idea that the centaurs' masculinity drives them to have more carnal impulses than humans. However, there are a few centaurs that are revered rather than condemned. 
The famous centaur Chiron taught deities like Asclepios, the god of medicine, and the Greek heroes Heracles, Achilles, and Jason. Greek mythology justifies Chiron's intelligence by establishing him in a different class than his lowly centaur brethren. He's born from the titan Cronus and is often shown with human front legs. Most importantly, Chiron is rarely seen indulging in wine. Much of the lore surrounding the centaur's uncivilized behavior came from a battle called the Centauromachy. This was when a fight broke out at a wedding between the centaurs and a group of people from northern Thessaly called the Lapiths. Depictions of this battle were commonplace in decorative sculptures on Greek buildings and temples. Most notably, the Temple of Zeus at Olympia had striking sculptures showing the fight. Many historians see the legend of the battle as a metaphoric struggle between civilization and barbarism. But it also reminds us of an all-too-relatable situation when a party guest has a bit too much to drink. Somewhere on a lush hillside in Thessaly, the wedding of King Pirithus was in full swing. Pirithus presided over the party from the head of a large table. He was dressed in exquisite finery, with his beautiful bride, Hippodamia, by his side. Their cheeks were flushed with drink, and they clapped with joy at their dancing guests. But not all the guests were dancing. At a table nearby, a dozen men sat, stiffly observing the revels. Pirithus glared openly at the rudeness of these stoic guests. He couldn't resist calling out, Brothers, you look as if you're attending a funeral. Come, drink with the rest of us. Pirithus swayed on his feet as he stood and did a little jig to demonstrate. The brothers shared a glance. They slowly rose from the table, revealing they were not men at all. Their human bodies ended at the waist, where they became the flanks of a horse. Their muscles rippled beneath the lush fur on their legs and hindquarters. The centaurs made no move to join the festivities. They merely bowed respectfully and sat back down. Pirithus glowered. If they could not loosen up on their own, he knew just the thing that would help. His speech slurred as he commanded the servants to bring the centaurs the best spirits from his cellars. He smiled wickedly as he explained, Wine of Dionysus, hard to come by, but I have a few barrels just for this occasion, only the best for my honored guests. Hippodamia shot him a worried look, but he squeezed her hand reassuringly. The rich red liquid sparkled as it filled the goblets, its sweet yet sharp scent carrying over the feast surrounding them. The centaur's eyes lit up, their nostrils flared. None of them could resist. They gulped down the wine as if they were dying of thirst, greedily pressing the servants to refill their goblets over and over, all except for one. The young centaur Pholos stared at his wine uneasily. He liked things quiet and civilized and had seen the way mortals grew silly when drinking wine. He would not join his brothers. 
Beside him, the centaur Nessus held none of the same qualms. He drank his wine with relish. Some splashed onto Folos's hand. Folos glowered and wiped it off with a napkin. Nessus laughed. Why do you look so sour? Folos replied stiffly, Next time, a warning, so that I may move. Nessus scoffed and swung his cup so that its remaining contents splattered over Folos. He grinned fiendishly. Apologies, warnings are difficult for me. I do not know what I do before I do it. It's called passionate living, my uptight friend. Before an indignant Folos could retort, a sound ripped through the air. It was one of the centaurs rearing up on his hind legs and bellowing freely. The others joined in. Nessus jumped on the table, slapping his chest as he neighed. They all stomped their hooves emphatically, smiling with delirious joy. The other guests shrank back as the centaurs raced over to dance around them. Their tails whipped the guests, hooves knocking over tables and carelessly crushing toes. Folos watched, his unease growing as the centaurs became more boisterous. He saw Nessus throw a guest onto his back and gallop around the hillside. Another centaur grabbed a jug of wine and sprinted into the center of the crowd, pouring it over guests while his brothers clapped. Folos's cheeks flushed. He knew that humans thought of centaurs as less than them. Only centaurs like Chiron, who taught the great heroes, were worthy of their respect. He looked over at the laughing Pirithus and his shame flared. He could not sit idly by. Folos timidly approached the king's table and said, I apologize for my brother's behavior. I think it must be the wine. Pirithus snorted. That same wine is in my cup, and yet I sit here in my chair rather than running around like a wild animal. Folos hung his head, mortified. He stammered that they should be leaving. Eyes gleaming with contempt, Pirithus picked up a jug of wine from the table and tossed it to Folos. He said, for the beasts at home. Hippodamea frowned at her new husband and opened her mouth to address Folos, but instead let out a scream as she was suddenly yanked away from the table. Folos and Pirithus both gasped as a centaur threw Hippodamia on his back and sprinted away as fast as he could, laughing wildly. The centaurs carried the terrified Hippodamia around the hillside, cheering and whooping over her screams. Pirithus shot to his feet, furiously calling out to his guests to help her. A handsome, muscular man stepped forward from the crowd. Folos's mouth fell open. He recognized the man immediately as the hero Theseus. Theseus bounded toward the lead centaur, hands raised to swing himself onto its back. Before he could, the centaur raised its front legs and kicked him square in the chest, knocking him down. 
Guests screamed. The centaurs bucked and reared, trampling those that got underfoot. Hippodamea sobbed in terror as she clung to the centaur's back for dear life. Pirithus screamed, Do something! Theseus, stop them! Theseus rose and lunged toward the centaur who held Hippodamea, plunging a knife into the horseman's chest. The centaur neighed in agony and collapsed. Pholos's jaw dropped in horror. His hands shook as he clutched the jug of wine that Pirithus had thrown at him. The centaurs stopped their rampage to stare, frozen at their fallen brother. Nessus was the first to step forward, his eyes murderous as blood spread into the grass beneath the centaur's body. The other centaurs screamed with rage and surged toward the hero. Theseus defended himself as their hooves smashed into his chest, against his face, shattering his hand. Guests lurched forward, grabbing silverware, vases, plates, anything they could use to fight the beasts. Pirithus yelled to his servants to gather spears from the wedding tent and arm the guests. As the weapons reached the humans, the tide began to turn. One after another, the centaur's limp bodies hit the ground. Pholos slowly backed away from the massacre with wide eyes. His mouth opened in a scream, but no sound came out. The guests were spearing his brothers one by one. When the chaos subsided, Nessus was the only centaur standing. Nessus roared and took off in the opposite direction. Seeing his brother flee, Pholos finally felt himself wake up. With his heart thundering, he turned and fled for his life. Up next, the surviving centaurs deal with the aftermath of the slaughter. Now back to the story. At a wedding for their half-brother, King Pirithus, a group of centaurs had been pressed into drinking wine, only to discover that the liquid drove them wild. After trying to make off with Pirithus's bride, their newfound rowdiness turned the wedding into a battlefield. The centaur Pholos managed to get away from the bloodshed. He fled from the scene with a jug of wine that Pirithus had given him, the very wine that had caused the undue massacre of his brothers. Centaurs began appearing in Greek art and sculptures as early as the Bronze Age. Because they've been part of mythology for so long, it's hard to pinpoint when the myth began. Some historians think the myth of the centaur has roots in the bull hunters of Thessaly. They rode on horseback and were said to be so skilled that horse and man appeared to be one. Lending credence to this theory is the fact that the Latin word tor means bull. So centaur may have meant bull killer. 
Still other theories suggest that the centaur was a variation on the ancient horse master, whose depictions on vases or cups at the time were misinterpreted as a single creature. Or again, a horse master that shows mastery over the animal, so it appears to be a single entity, moving as one. Horses were an important part of ancient Greece. As early as the 4th millennium BCE, they were used in warfare, racing, traveling, and hunting. They were also expensive and were therefore associated with the wealthy and elite before they became more widespread. But it wasn't just price that made horses exceptional in ancient Greece. They were heavily linked to their deities as well. Poseidon, god of the sea, is said to have created the first horse, while Athena is credited with domesticating it for mortals by creating reins and a bit. The horse appears so often in myth that it's practically a divine creature in and of itself. The way the ancient Greeks viewed horses is similar to how the centaur is received today. We view centaurs as wise and noble creatures, unreachable in their majesty, while at the same time, we can acknowledge their fearsome power and otherworldliness. Pholos galloped as fast as he could from the terrors he had witnessed. He did not stop until he reached the comfort of his cave at the base of Mount Pholoe. Finally alone, he wept for his brothers. He had not lifted a hand as they were slaughtered like common livestock. It was then he realized with a jolt that he was still holding the jug of wine. Instinctively, he uncorked it, letting the smell fill his nostrils. He slowly lifted it to his mouth. Just one sip and the grief would ease. A few more and he would forget about the bloodshed entirely. But then he remembered what his brothers had done, how they had acted. He set the wine down. No, he did not intend to fall prey to the bestial aspects of his nature, like his brothers. The wine must be destroyed. He hurried to the back of the cave and tilted the jug, ready to pour out its contents. But he couldn't bring himself to turn his wrist. Finally, he fit the cork back in. It was evil, yes, but also magic. He couldn't just destroy it. He would hide it deep within his cave and pray he would never again be tempted to taste it. Months later, Pholos stood on the edge of the river along with a hundred other centaurs. They chanted softly as they threw flowers into the water. The mood was somber. It was a ritual to honor those who were slaughtered at the wedding. Since that horrible night, the humans of Thessaly had banished the centaurs from their towns, driving them into the forest. Nessus appeared beside Pholos and asked, a hint of sarcasm in his voice, who do you mourn? Pholos closed his eyes. He was too tired for Nessus's antics, so he replied, Say what you wish to say, Nessus. Do not disguise it as a question. It is uncouth. Nessus sneered at the word uncouth. Pholos suppressed a smug smile. He could tell Nessus did not know what the word meant. 
he added with a touch of satisfaction, no fault of mine that you do not read. Nessus's face darkened. Why should I read the words of those that think us disgusting beasts? I am not like you, in love with the humans who think us beasts. I ask you again, who do you mourn? Our kin or your reputation? Pholos looked down. Of course he mourned his brothers, but he also mourned what might have been. He had dreams of being a teacher of heroes. He wanted to join Chiron in the history books, a helper, instead of being known as a beast. As if reading his mind, Nessus snorted, Go wait in your cave for Chiron to come and tell you what a good little centaur you are. Tell him how sorry you are that our kind offended the human race by being slaughtered. That night, the centaurs circled a fire, cooking and reading constellations. Pholos stared quietly into the flames, ruminating on Nessus's taunts. The brush rustled, and Pholos gasped when two figures stepped into the clearing. One looked like a centaur, but much larger and with human front legs. His broad chest was thrust out with confidence, and his very being oozed dignity and wisdom. It was Chiron, the most powerful of all centaurs, here in their camp. But it was his companion who truly glowed, a tall, muscular man with long, golden curls and dimples in his strong cheeks. He carried a majestic bow with a quiver of arrows on his back, the legendary hero, Heracles. Chiron hushed the excited centaurs. His cadence was both booming and gentle as he said, "'Cousins, I'm so very sorry for your loss.' His empathetic tone brought tears to Folos's eyes. His body shook with nerves. There was so much he wanted to ask, so much he wanted to know. Heracles' bored drawl cut into his rapidly churning thoughts. I've been looking for this pesky boar. Chiron told me you might help. Nessus lunged into view. Of course, enlist the rabid centaurs to find your bloodthirsty boar. A beast knows a beast, is that it? Pholos flushed with embarrassment. Helping Heracles could repair their image, and Nessus was doing all he could to maintain their status as savages. Pholos hurried forward. Nessus, those who yell loudest often have the most to learn. Heracles, Chiron, forgive him. We are all a little raw. Pholos bowed deeply, ignoring Nessus's stormy gaze. An hour later, Pholos nervously set out a spread of meat and berries in his cave. He was too anxious to speak as he watched Heracles dig into his meal. Chiron had declined dinner, instead offering to tell the young centaurs a tale by the fire. Pholos was disappointed, but this gave him an opportunity to assist the hero on his own. Heracles let out a large belch and chuckled. Pholos winced at his poor manners. As Heracles wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, he mused, "'Seems hardly a meal without wine.'" 
The centaur's stomach plummeted at the thought of bringing the wine out again. And yet, he had resisted it before, unlike his brothers. Maybe he was more like Chiron than he gave himself credit for. The thought emboldened him, and he hurried to the back of his cave to fetch the jug of wine. Pholos poured Heracles a cup and hurried to cork the wine. He wasn't fast enough. A single whiff of the drink's scent made him pause, body tingling. Heracles eyed him with amusement. Well, shall I drink alone then? Pholos moved as if under a spell. He knelt down, slowly reached for a cup, and poured himself some wine. Then he lifted it to his lips and drank. The cup was empty in a moment. He poured another. His heart thundered in his chest. As the world swayed around Pholos, Heracles finished his meal and stood. My belly is full and my heart is warm. My next great task? Finding my bed. Pholos shot to his feet, eyes wild. He pleaded, please stay for one more cup. He staggered slightly. He no longer felt in control of his body as the warmth of the wine spread down his haunches. Heracles slapped him on the shoulder jovially and said, A lightweight, eh? Sleep it off. I shall return. My wife, Deanira, is expecting me to warm her bed tonight, and you know what they say about angering a new bride. Before Pholos could respond, a thundering sound echoed from outside. Heracles turned toward the mouth of the cave and stiffened. He softly whispered to Pholos, what do they want? Pholos followed his gaze to a horde of centaurs gathered by the mouth of the cave. Their hooves pawed the ground, eyes desperate and pleading. They had smelled the wine. Coming up, the centaur's drunken rampage claims an innocent victim. Now back to the story. In the wake of a tragedy, Pholos the centaur had invited the great demigod Heracles for dinner at the base of Mount Pholoe. But after pouring Heracles some wine, he was unable to resist taking a drink himself. The centaurs of the surrounding area, including the ill-mannered and impulsive Nessus, were drawn in by the seductive scent of wine. The violence of centaurs is often attributed to their wine consumption, but there are more sinister portrayals of the centaur that go beyond the influence of alcohol. In Virgil's Aeneid, the centaurs appear alongside such other hybrid monstrosities as the harpy, hydra, and chimera as beasts that guard the entrance to the underworld. Throughout the medieval period, centaurs were connected to the underworld. In Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, 
the centaurs are depicted as ferocious beasts that patrol the banks of the Phlegathon, a river of blood in hell, shooting any sinners that might escape with their bow and arrow. These depictions demonstrated the duality of these half-human creatures. Their human half is able to govern rationally as an efficient guard, while their beast half can be violent and rely on instinct alone. Dread prickled at Folos's stomach as he caught the hungry gaze in Nessus's eyes. He knew that wild look all too well. Nessus lunged for the jug of wine. The two centaurs collided. Folos fell to the ground as the stronger Nessus shoved him aside. He scooped up the jug and poured it into his mouth as the other centaurs swarmed him. Folos's body shook as he watched. Where the other centaurs were driven mad by the drink, Folos's turbulent emotions had turned to shame. He was once again watching his kin turn into monsters. At that moment, the soothing voice of Chiron echoed into the cave. Centaurs, hear my voice and come back to me. Folos looked up to see the elder centaur step up to the cave, wise face furrowed in a worried frown. Tears sprung into Folos's eyes as Chiron looked down at him. He could see the disappointment in his idol's look. But the centaurs did not listen to Chiron. Instead, when the jug was finally empty, they sniffed the air. Their wide, bloodshot eyes landed on Heracles' half-empty cup on the table. Heracles backed away, calling out, Stop, beasts! Come no closer! Nessus was the first to the cup. He drained it and threw it to the ground. Then he turned to Heracles and yelled, You dare call us beasts? Folos watched in horror as Nessus charged at the great Heracles. Alarmed at the sudden movement, Heracles unleashed an arrow at Nessus, just as Chiron held out a hand to stop him. Heracles' arrow was knocked off course by the outstretched hand. Chiron gasped as the arrow tip sliced across his palm. Heracles stared at his teacher. His cavalier attitude gave way to shock as he realized what he had done. The cave fell silent. Folos raised himself from the floor, voice stolen away by horror. The moment was broken when Nessus let out a scream of rage. The centaurs charged Heracles again. The hero let another arrow fly, that pierced the throat of a centaur. Folo screamed as the centaur fell. The slaughter had begun again. The centaurs charged forward in a rage, and Heracles shot them down one by one. Folo sobbed, his head in his hands as Chiron writhed on the ground nearby, cradling his palm. A centaur landed next to Folos, an arrow sticking out of its eye. 
Folo stared at the dead creature's face with pity before gently reaching over to pull out the shaft. The horrors his kind had seen gutted him, and this time the massacre was his doing. Nessus overturned the table with a yell. Startled, Folos dropped the arrow. It fell through the air and sliced his leg before it clattered to the ground. Folos cried out as a surge of pain emanated from the scratch. It quickly spread up his leg into his haunches until his whole body throbbed. It was then he remembered. Heracles didn't just have regular arrows. The arrows that he had in his possession were poison-tipped. It was why the great Chiron now writhed on the floor from a mere scratch, and why at this very moment he was dying. Pholos sank to the ground, burning from his tail to his shoulders. The world grew dim around him as the pain swallowed every one of his senses. Then it was all over. Above Pholos, Nessus was basking in his wild strength. He had not felt this surge of power since the wedding, and he relished every moment of it. He zeroed in on Heracles, the pompous hero. He watched as Heracles slaughtered his kind left and right, as if he was squashing bugs. Deep rage coursed through Nessus's body. A moment later, he was seized with an impulse, an impulse that would show Heracles just how powerful a centaur was. And unlike Pholos, Nessus would not ignore his passions. He would find Heracles' wife and teach this so-called hero a lesson. He ran wildly through the trees. The wine clouded his rational human thoughts. Only his bestial half remained, and it wanted blood. He ran and ran, not feeling the branches cut at his face and chest, not feeling his limbs fatigue. His instincts urged him onward. He flared his nostrils, soon catching the sweet smell of a human woman. She was not far. Nessus burst into a clearing, startling the lovely Deanira as she knelt beside a fire. She stood in fear and backed away at the sight of this wild beast with drunken fury in its eyes. Nessus took in her beauty, her isolation, her defenselessness. His rage dissipated, and lust soon took its place. He had to have her. Nessus let out a bellowing neigh and charged. He grabbed Deanira and threw her onto his back. Deanira let out a cry as Nessus charged through the forest. He would bring her to the mountains in the east, far from here. There, he'd take her for his own. His breath came out in sharp, abrupt bursts as he tore through trees and leapt over rocks, until finally, 
he came to a river. He charged into the cold water without hesitation. Deanira cried for help as the strong currents washed around them. Nessus forced himself onward, breathing heavily as he worked through the rough water to the other side. But his movements were slowing. The icy river had awakened him somewhat. His eyes began to dim, and his body slumped with exhaustion. He struggled through the currents and finally made it to the other side. There, he knelt down to allow Deanira off his back. She stared at him, her eyes full of fear. In that moment, Nessus realized that she was looking at him as one might look at a monster. Shame flared within him and he growled, do I disgust you? He jerked backwards as an arrow sprouted from his chest. Nessus looked down at the arrow, his hand trembling as he touched the mortal wound. He looked up to see Heracles stepping from behind a tree. Nessus stared in fury at the demigod and his wife. They would get to live on, content in their superiority, while the legend of Nessus would be that of a monster. He lunged forward and grabbed Deanira's hand to haltingly whisper, Take my blood, take it. His final words to her were barely above a whisper. You may find me repulsive, but my blood, it's as good as a love charm. As soon as the words left his mouth, he fell limp. Deanira stared at the dead beast, his words ringing in her ears. Then she took the hem of her dress and soaked it in Nessus's blood before Heracles could see. As time wore on, Deanira began to grow anxious at her husband's wandering eye and dipped Heracles's tunic in Nessus's poisoned blood. She had thought it would prevent him from running off with the Princess Iole, but by the time she realized she'd been tricked by Nessus, it was too late. Heracles died as his skin absorbed the poison. Chiron, on the other hand, was immortal. Heracles' arrow, therefore, did not kill him, but the poison caused him immense, eternal pain. He would later give up his immortality to help the titan Prometheus and ascended to Olympus, where he took his place among the gods. In looking between the three centaurs, Chiron, Nessus, and Pholos, we're offered an opportunity to explore our own human nature through their dichotomy. Chiron represents the idealized version of self. He shows us what is possible and gives us hope that even if we are part beast, we should be able to tame the more violent parts of ourselves. But the Greeks use centaurs like Pholos and Nessus to point out what can happen when you give in to your passions. Pholos exemplifies the danger of letting your ambition lower your inhibitions. 
the centaur's symbolism extends to the relationship between man and the animal world, and civilization and barbarism. The Centauromachy in particular was dated around the time that Greece was victorious in defeating Persia. Their view of the unfamiliar people they had conquered was no doubt fraught with tension as they looked down upon a culture quite different from their own. Depictions of the centaur have changed over time, but their consistent popularity in literature and culture shows just how much these creatures have captured our imagination. Since then, popular fantasy authors like J.K. Rowling, C.S. Lewis, and Rick Riordan have offered up a more respectful image of the centaur that shows its wisdom, power, and nobility. Perhaps because we've come to realize that our own true inner impulses do not have to be geared towards the darkness of violent passions and wild vices. Our true selves can also be beautiful. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on centaurs, amongst the many sources we used, we found From Chiron to Foley, The Centaur in Classical Mythology and Fantasy Literature by Lisa Maurice, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 